If you would keep your bulletin open or your Bible open to Psalm 73, written by Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader in Israel under the reign of King David. King David appointed, the Bible says, appointed Asaph as the chief minister before the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God. So we have Nathan Carrico as our director of celebration. He is the Asaph of Mountain Fellowship. And Asaph is the Nathan Carrico, or was, of Israel. Pretty impressive. But Asaph, God's worship leader, had doubts about God. Here's Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, would you come now? And uh, as, as we have come to worship, as we have come into your present, 
presence. Would you be present with us? And would you show us Jesus? Would you uh, turn our doubting hearts into a deeper, deeper trust um, in your heart? Because it is good. And you only do good. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So along with our newest staff members, Eric Parker, who led us this morning, and Jennifer Ford, whom you all know, uh, we've been talking about the kind of church we long to be for the next generation. And uh, one of the things that we've talked about is that we want Mountain Fellowship to be a safe place for doubt. Um, We long for God to create a church culture in us that allows our kids, the next generation, to feel free to come with their questions and their doubts. Their doubts about God, the Bible, Christianity, life, relationships, whatever the topic. But uh, I can't say it quite as eloquently as Jennifer Ford did, so I'm going to read something that she has said recently. I did not ask her permission to do this. (laughs) She said, There's sometimes the notion that real Christians don't doubt. That's not what we believe. We want, to afford, uh, we want to affirm that doubt can actually shape our faith in stronger, more lasting ways. We want to be a place where we can get beyond the Sunday school answers and really wrestle with the rubber meets the road questions that we all have. Things like, what if I feel angry with God? How can a loving God send someone to hell? Or if God is good, why do I suffer? Or is God hearing me when I pray? Or this was my favorite question that she brought up. Does being a Christian mean I have to be boring? Because sometimes it looks that way, doesn't it? Um, Or doesn't it seem arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God? All these kinds of questions, she said, that we need to be able to express and think through in a real way in the context of real relationships being our real selves versus our social media selves. I, I can't express that better than Jennifer has expressed it. That's our desire uh, at Mountain Fellowship, to be a safe place for doubt. Alistair McGrath said that doubt is not unbelief. It can, it can however, become unbelief. Um, it's not unbelief, but it can become un- unbelief. I put in your bulletin a quote from Oz Guinness, and he said, contrary to widespread misunderstanding, doubt is not the same as unbelief, so it is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is a halfway stage between faith and unbelief that can either lead to a deepened faith or it can break down into unbelief. And and that's where Asaph finds himself. He's teetering on that tightrope between faith, which he already has, and unbelief into which he almost fell. Verse 2, he said, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph believed, but he was having his doubts. Um, He was so close to tripping over his doubts and falling into unbelief, but he didn't. And rather than breaking down into unbelief, his doubts drove him into a deeper faith. And we'll see why in a moment, but... But I wanted to just express, I'm convinced that one reason the Holy Spirit put Psalm 73 
in the Bible and others uh, is so that we would see that in the Christian life, doubt is normal. So don't be surprised by your doubts. In fact, verses 1 through 14, half of this psalm describes Asaph's doubt. If God was afraid of your doubt, he would not have put this psalm in the Bible. So I hope that helps you. Um, as I mentioned, Asaph was a musician. And I'm told by the musicians I know that nothing bothers a, mu- a musician quite like dissonance, right? Dissonance, it's when two musical notes are played together, but they clash, they don't harmonize. Um, and, and you know that when you hear it, it makes you cringe. It's like on American Idol when someone sings off key or out of tune, and all the judges, they have that, that cringy face, and somebody says, yo, dog, that was a little pitchy, <laughs> right? That's dissonance. And, and when we hear it, we know we make the cringy face. Asaph, God's chief worship musician, is hearing dissonance. He's hearing that tension between what he knows about God and what he's seeing in his own world. And it makes him make a cringy face, honestly. So here's what Asaph knows about God. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph believes what his boss, King David, believed. David said in Psalm 119 to God, you are good and you do good. And so Asaph knows that God is good to Israel and that to Israel, God is good. But here's what Asaph sees in his world. Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph sees the wicked who are not pure in heart. They're not God's people. He sees that they're living the so-called good life. Verse 4, They have no pangs until death. You know, they're living a pain-free life. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a sign of luxury. They're living the good life. They're not in trouble, verse 5 says, as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. But don't get me wrong. It's not just that they're living in luxury. Luxury is not the problem here. The problem is their heart toward God and others in their luxury. Notice, They're living the good life at the expense of their neighbors, violently taking advantage of people, scoffing them, oppressing them. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They're living the good life at the expense of people. And not only that, they're living the good life in rebellion against God. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, what is God going to do about it? What does God know anyway? So they're living this good life while at the same time not believing that God is the greatest good. John Piper says that one way to describe sin is this. Sin is a mindset that prefers other things more than God. Therefore, sin exchanges God for created things, and therefore sin belittles God 
It demeans God. It's rebellious toward God. So the problem with the wicked in this psalm is not so much that they're living the good life, but that they prefer the good life more than the good God. And so now in verse 12, here's what bothers Asaph about this situation. He says, behold, look, these are the wicked. These are the wicked. These are the ones who prefer the good life over the good God, and they're always at ease, and they increase in riches. He sees those who prefer other things as more good than God, who belittle God and demean God and are rebellious against God, but he does not see God doing anything about it. So it appears that God is at best indifferent, or at worst, unjust. Meanwhile, God's own people, like Asaph, are getting beat down by life. Verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So this is what I get for keeping my heart and hands clean, oh God? I'm confused. I know the truth. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But I keep my heart and hands clean, and I'm stricken and rebuked. They, the wicked, use their hearts and hands to live off of people and apart from you, and are they stricken and rebuked? No. Everything seems to be going great for them. The rebellious are living the dream, while the righteous are living a nightmare. So Asaph is saying, what I know to be true about you doesn't look true, God, Are you really good to us, Lord? Are you really good? That's what it feels like to doubt. When what you believe about God has been challenged by what you see in your world. Have have you felt that? Perhaps you are feeling that now. C.S. Lewis um, felt that dissonance when his wife Joy died from cancer. Um... He had doubts about God's goodness. He wrote a personal journal throughout her dying and after her death, and it was later published uh, as a book called A Grief Observed. Observed. can't say it, but that's what it's called. And this is what he wrote. He said, the conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Lewis wasn't in danger of becoming an atheist. He still believed in God. But like Asaph, he was seeing in his world something that challenged his view of God. And if you know Lewis's story, you know that his doubts ultimately deepened his faith. He didn't abandon his faith. His doubts moved him toward God and not away from him. And and that describes what uh, Bobby Conway says about doubt in his book, Doubting Toward Faith. He says that doubt is directional. We can doubt toward God or we can doubt away from God. C.S. Lewis and Asaph were doubting toward God, not away from him. So what does that look like? How did Asaph doubt toward God? Well, first, in verse 15, you can see that in doubting toward God, he moved away from unbelief. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, I'm going to tell everybody that God is wrong here. 
If I had said that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, he said. So it's as if in in his mind's eye, he traced out, he walked down the path of his doubts to the path of unbelief. And he knew that if he did that, he would end up in a bad place. He knew that he would not be speaking the truth about God. He knew that he would not be telling the next generation the truth about God if he went to unbelief. So he had a choice. I can let my doubt drive me away from God to unbelief, or I can let my doubt drive me to God. And so Asaph chose to doubt toward God. And so what did he do? Asaph took his doubts to worship. What? Asaph took his doubts to worship? Doesn't it seem counterintuitive? It seems like when I have doubts about God, worship's the last place I'd want to go. But Asaph took his doubts to worship. He said, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand all this, how how it could be true that God is good when what I see tells a different story, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. In order to answer his doubts about God, Asaph, Asaph took his doubts to God in worship. Because what he needed more than anything else was to be assured that the truth he knew about God, that God is good and does good, was still true despite what he saw in his world. Like C.S. Lewis, he needed his faith deepened to the point that it could trust God's goodness even when he couldn't see it. And so where do we find the evidence that God is good and does good? Where do I go to understand these things? Asaph says, when in doubt, go to worship. Because each week in worship, I'm reminded who God is. Verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In other words, in the end, the wicked will face God. And it won't go well for them, by the way. Verse 18, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You despise them as phantoms, he says. So when I go to worship, I hear the story of God in the word of God, and I remember that God is the righteous judge who will hold all of the wicked accountable. When you come to worship each week, you learn who God is. You learn who God is through the songs we sing, through the confession of faith, through the reading and preaching of God's word. So each week in worship, we learn, as R.C. Sproul has said, that the biggest problem the human race has is this. God is holy, he's righteous, he's just, and we're not. So in worship, I learn who God is, but that leads to the second thing that I remember in worship, and that is I'm reminded who I am, and when I am, it's shocking. In worship, I'm reminded that I'm one of the wicked. Asaph goes on to say, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, which means I was soured. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That's what these wicked he's just described are like. So during the worship service in the sanctuary of God, Asaph's heart was pricked or it was pierced 
with the conviction that he is just like the wicked that he was envying. He too has become soured toward God, like a beast, stubborn-hearted and unwilling to submit to God. When you and I come to worship each week, we're confronted with the holiness of God. We come to see ourselves for who we are, that we too are those who deserve to be set on the slippery path that leads to a fall to ruin, whose sins against God and others make us worthy to be destroyed in a moment and swept away by the terror of being despised by God. And so, that's why each week when we come to worship, we confess our sins together. We confess our sins privately. Our worship always includes the opportunity for each of us to confess that we've been pierced through the heart by our sin of preferring other things more than we prefer God. But, but now there's a shift in verse 23. Nevertheless, Asaph says, nevertheless, listen, this word means there's good news coming. Nevertheless, so Asaph deserves the judgment of the righteous God, but nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. What? Instead of being despised by God and swept away utterly by God, Asaph is somehow now continually with God? How can Asaph know that he's continually with God? Sinners can't be continually with God unless God removes their sin. But remember, Asaph is the chief minister before the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God. So whenever Asaph worshipped in the temple, he heard the word of God's covenant promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he saw and smelled the sacrifices of God that made that possible the sacrifices for the sins of God's people, so that the only way that sinful people can be continually with God is for their sin to be paid for and covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. And so, because of this, let's keep going. Asaph can say, you hold my right hand. Asaph is gripped by the grace of God. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. Asaph is guided by the grace of God. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He has hope that he will one day enjoy face-to-face the glory of God. Do you hear what this is? This is the gospel. This is Romans 8 in Psalm 73. Those who trust Jesus is their Lamb of God who takes away their sin will be gripped by God's justifying grace. They will be guided by God's sanctifying spirit. And they will know that just as we read from Jude's letter earlier this morning, God is able to keep them from stumbling and to present them before the presence of his glory with great joy. Friends, bring your doubts about God's goodness to worship. Because in worship, you'll be reminded of the good news that the guilty through Jesus can be gripped by God's grace, guided by his spirit, and glorified one day 
because they've been conformed to the image of his son. That's why each week we confess our sins and then we remind you of the gospel with the assurance of pardon. It's why we preach the gospel to you every Sunday. It's why we show the gospel to you in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Because as someone once said, it will take all of eternity to realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So why not every Sunday start that treasure quest now? And let's dig deep into this treasure and find out all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then notice where bringing his doubts to worship leaves Asaph, verse 25. This is is where all of this has left him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When Asaph brings his doubts about God to God in worship, he's not only reminded about who God is, he, he remembers who God is to him. In worship, Asaph has heard and seen what God has done for him, and, is, and he now revels in who and what God is for him. Here's the final conclusion, folks. God is Asaph's highest good. He may envy the good life of the wicked and wonder, is is that the good life? But no, after coming to worship, he remembers, God is my highest good, no matter what life looks like. Because worship has reminded and, and reshaped for Asaph what good really is. He says, for me it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. True good is unhindered fellowship with the true and living, trustworthy and loving God of the universe. It is good to be near God. So let everyone else prefer their good life more than God, but as for me, there is nothing on earth I desire more than you. There's nothing more that I desire than being near my good God, who is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so that's why every week we come to this table, because the Lord's Supper retrains our appetites to acquire the taste that God is our eternal satisfaction, not the temporal fatness that the wicked enjoy. No. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why we come to this table every week. Sunday morning worship is God's gift to us so that he might strengthen our doubting hearts to trust the good heart of God. So when John the Baptist sat in a prison about to be beheaded by King Herod. He was doubting. And he sent men to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you really the Messiah that was sent by God or should we be looking for someone else? And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't send back a message and say, John, you idiot, what's wrong with you? He didn't shame him. He didn't condemn him. John sent 
a reminder. I mean, Jesus sent a reminder to John that the good heart of God could be heard in the good word that Jesus was preaching and could be seen in the good works that Jesus was doing. And friends, that's what we do in worship every Sunday. We, like John, we wonder, is this Jesus really as good as he says he is? And through the good word that Jesus preaches to us every Sunday and the good work that Jesus has done that he shows us, whether it's in the Lord's table or baptism, we are reminded that God is good. So when in doubt, go worship with God's people. Listen to his word. Confess your sin. Take comfort in the gospel that through Jesus, you are in God's grip. His spirit is guiding you. And one day he will glorify you in his presence, blameless with great joy. And then keep coming back to train your appetite to taste and see that the Lord is good. That he is to be desired above everything else on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for worship. Wow. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew that it could be so practical for us as to come with your people, sit in your presence, hear your word, taste and see that Jesus is good, and have our doubting hearts encouraged. I pray that you do that today by the power of your spirit for me and for my brothers and sisters, even as we come to this table, which you have set before us to show us your good heart through Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.